This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Biden administration, prompted by Congress, has banned sales of telecommunications gear from Chinese companies. Now the question is, should anything come next when it comes to Chinese products that might have national security implications? Earlier, we heard from FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr on that first decision, and later we're going to hear from a researcher who found the Agriculture Department buying Chinese drones the Army has banned. Now we turn to visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and former China director at the National Security Council, Matt Turpin. Mr. Turpin, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. How are you? All right. So there is this ban in place, and I think it's been a long time building the Huawei ZTE ban, and it was sort of policy by executive order. Now it's legal statutory thing that's happened. But should that be where it ends? What else does the government need to do, do you feel, to make sure that Chinese products that are a national security threat, if not bought directly, which I think you can't do under regulations anyway, don't make it somehow into the supply chain? First of all, the statute has been there in certain portions for quite some time, right? So we go back to late 2018 in the passage of the National Defense Authorization Act, Section 889 prohibits the U.S. government from contracting with Huawei, ZTE, Hike Vision. It then, you know, a year later, you know, the provisions of that same statute prohibits the U.S. government to contract with companies that are contracting with those companies. So the action by the FCC is really a sort of a broader alignment of a, a sort of a lattice of statutory and regulatory actions that prohibits those companies from operating inside the United States. And now, essentially prohibiting the importation of those goods into the United States. I, th- I think that's that's an important sort of thing. And obviously, this goes back to like 2012, as Congress started to look into this problem and really began to take actions to limit the major telecommunications operators from taking on this equipment into their networks. Yeah, there's really two issues we should point out. One is what is happening in the general economy. And the latest ban is nobody can have this because telecommunications is so pervasive what the government itself can buy, that's a little bit more clear cut. Right. And of course, the whole provisions around making sure that that if you want to do business with the U.S. government, you can't be doing business with these companies means that for an awful lot of companies across the United States, they're simply not going to be buying that equipment and are not going to be on associated with it. Like the, the savings they would get from buying those things does not offset the giving up of potential government contracts. Right. Because Next, we're going to hear from someone who has done some research, FOIA research, and there are direct Chinese drones from a large manufacturer that makes good stuff. I mean, the stuff that's coming out of China is not junk. It's very high-end gear. But these are drones that the Army has banned, for example, and I think a couple of other departments have banned because of the surveillance and reach-back capabilities potentially in them. So what should happen there, do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the administration and Congress is working through a number of different sort of tools and levers they might use to reduce our vulnerabilities, yet still gain access to the kinds of technology we'd want to gain access to, right? So I think there's a balancing act going on. I suspect that what we'll see is a similar set of actions that we've seen in this area. Now, arguably, it's debatable whether the FCC has jurisdiction here. It might over these sorts of things in terms of the broadcast ability of these drones. But you know, I think that still is being worked out. And of course, this is just sort of how the messy aspects of our divided government sort of works. It just takes some time to figure out what are the appropriate authorities to use. I guess if the prices were equal for Chinese and 
EU, say, made or American-made products, there would be no choice whatsoever. No one would ever knowingly choose the Chinese if it was the same price. But that's the unstated part of a lot of these debates, is that the Chinese stuff comes in so much cheaper than what is made elsewhere. Yeah, so I think you know, sort of where we were before some of the actions by the Trump administration and the Biden administration on blocking the PRC's access to advanced chips is that the sort of the three variables, right, cost, quality, and sort of scale, right, production scale for companies. You know, before, essentially, two of those were equal or beneficial for the PRC. Quality, as in sort of for telecommunications gear, we're talking about everyone is building to a 3GPP standard, right, whether that's 4G or 5G. The equipment is actually the same. It's meant to be the same because it's built on a standard that is globally recognized, right? So therefore, what people are competing on is on either scale of production, which the PRC has enormous scale to produce electronics, and then on cost, which in many cases, the PRC companies were producing things at 20, 30, 40% below the cost of manufacturing for other places, right? And that would make it incredibly effective. Now, some actions that the US government has taken is that it's gone after that quality side. So if PRC can't get access to cutting edge chips, that's what makes those things competitive. That's why we've seen a number of the contracts for 5G for Huawei fall through is because they can't actually build things, network equipment to the 5G standard because they can't include some of the chips that the United States could block. That's sort of what's changing here. And I think that's what's to keep in mind. So therefore, it doesn't matter sort of you know how cheap they make it. You're not going to buy a 5G base station from a company that actually can't produce a 5G base station. Got it. We're speaking with Matt Turpin. He's a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and former China director at the National Security Council. And how far down does this go with respect to, do you think, federal policy and federal action? Because if you think about the market for home surveillance and small business surveillance, everybody's got these doorbells that look at you and you can't watch a cable network without seeing surveillance video of this or that happening. A lot of that is made in China, the consumer-grade stuff coming in. Is that or should that be of concern to the federal government? Or, you know, you're speaking from the standpoint of Hoover, which is kind of a free market-oriented institution. And that's where it gets a little fuzzy, though, doesn't it? Yeah. So I think this sort of the space of sort of the Internet of Things, right, where we're watching sort of everything be connected. Your refrigerator tells you that you've run out of stuff and therefore it adds it to your shopping list automatically, right? Those, you know, the ring doorbell in which, you know, a video transmission of what's at your front door is transmitted to you anywhere in the world, which means that it's being transmitted. Therefore, while you believe that you're the only one who could potentially see that, certainly the manufacturer of that, you know, certainly could continue to have access to what that is. Those things I think are concerning. And this is sort of, you know, the broader arguments around and discussions around privacy, like what sort of national privacy laws should we be having in place about personal data? So these things are all obviously sort of in flux. I suspect that we're going to continue to move towards regulations that are around protecting individual privacy and protecting data, particularly data that flows to hostile nation states that have a demonstrated track record of seeking to use things against us and undermine the United States and our allies. And so therefore, I, I suspect that we're going to continue to see this move. I think this space of Internet of Things is likely our next area. But, you know, there's going to be an awful lot of debate, right? I mean, the other debate is, you know, the PRC makes some of the best gear in this space, right? For a smart home, it works and it's relatively less expensive. That's going to be an argument about 
do people really want it? Or are they willing to pay more? Or is this something that is a bit superfluous and we don't really need these kinds of things? All of that is a debate that's going to sort of unfold, I think, over the next few years. In some ways, this almost touches on the TikTok debate because that is really the biggest Internet of Things element in the United States, and people download it free. Yeah, and increasingly we're watching the 18 to 26-year-old age group, you know, according to a, a latest Pew poll, the 30% of them get their news from TikTok. So rather it simply being viewed as sort of this entertainment platform for short-form videos, increasingly folks identify this as a news source. Which, you know, arguably, if this was a television station or radio station, foreign ownership, foreign control, and foreign influence over it, we would have regulatory actions to be able to take a look at this. You know, unfortunately, we've allowed the actions within sort of this carve out of an internet space to sort of be not subject to these rules, which in a variety of things for social media platforms, we're wrestling with in a number of different places. And so I think this is coming to a head I think we are likely to see continued action against TikTok and its operations in the United States. It just makes, to me, no sense that we would allow a foreign-owned, you know, particularly by the PRC, a platform used to manipulate and show through algorithms directed information to people with no way for us to be able to understand what's happening there, and a history of them showing and, and censoring things that are sensitive to the Chinese Communist Party. You cannot find videos about the protests happening in China on TikTok, sure. right? So this would suggest to me that this is not exactly an open platform in which free ideas are shared. It's shaped towards Beijing's preferences. So a lot of trade and other policy area development yet to come, you feel? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, we, we watched this happening. Senator Cornyn and a few other members of, of the Senate held a hearing, I think last week or the week before, looking at digital trade policy, and certainly TikTok came up, um, but many of these other areas, right? So so I think we have to keep in mind that, that the PRC refuses to allow this sort of free access on data and those sorts of things. So we've essentially created a one-way valve where Beijing gets full access into our market and can take data and move it out, and yet they restrict it on their end. And I think what we're going to move to is a greater degree of reciprocity. Of course, it would be preferable if everyone observed a sort of a free market and allowed sort of open competition and a fair interpretation of rules, that would be economically more efficient. But that is simply not the world we live in. We live in a world in which the second largest economy in the world controls its economy and manipulates it in ways to undermine us. And that, that is simply you know, us just not taking action anymore, I don't think, is a realistic prospect. Matt Turpin is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, former China director at the National Security Council, and we should also note 20-year Army veteran. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University. 
and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly, you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done, no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time.